This is Bragg, son of Balin, and you're listening to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast. Welcome to the world of Middle-earth. shall answer. Amandine, welcome to Light the Beacons, a Lotro podcast focusing on the indefatigable MMORPG Lord of the Rings Online, as well as related topics in books, movies, gaming, and the lore of Gerarar Tokian. This is episode Sweet 16, and I'm your host, Bragg of the Lonely Mountain, Hammerhand, and Dwarf of Ill Repute. Once again, I'm broadcasting live from LTB Middle Earthwide headquarters atop the bridge shard in the foundations of stone. Uh, things are looking rather bleak down here tonight. Kind of gloomy, kind of dark, kind of a moody, sort of a clammy. Yeah, it's the same as it usually is. So, um, Worldwide Headquarters is coming along nicely. Uh, we installed a water cooler this week, uh, which is uh, looking pretty handy, although the water in it has turned green. Uh, to match that surrounding our little uh, office here. So um, I'm going to have Grima drink from it first and see how things go. If he doesn't explode into one of those glob snagas by next week, maybe I'll give it a try. Aside from that, uh, most importantly, I'm working on an antenna to get a better signal down here. We are kind of deep. Uh, what I've found is that not too many people receiving the LTB signal outside of uh, the Foundations of Stone. And the spiders and Tunzel Gun really, you know, uh, they don't make good viewers. You guys don't even make good viewers. I'm not sure anyone's a good viewer of the podcast at all, which I'm really disappointed in. But what I've done is I've strapped a large array to Grima's back, and he's currently schlepping it up the endless stair to try to get some better transmission down here. <laughs> that ought to keep him busy for a while. Uh, so be that as it may, let's light our second beacon. Let's review our agenda for this week. Uh, first, it's time for CRAP, corrections, retractions, and apologies from last week. So uh, some of you have inquired in, wanting to know how you can get uh, make some uh, you know generous donations to the Oakheart Foundation for Slow-Moving Children. And I want to thank you for your interest. Uh, you know, I know the Lotro community, how generous you are. Um, and... <clears throat> What I've done is uh, I've, I've worked with Sarah. Um, she's using a new service called PayHag. And uh, you can PayHag her at the following email address, um, socart or socart at aol.com. Yeah, I know. She's oh, AOL. I was making fun of her. A little behind the times there. But socart at aol.com. Feel free to use PayHag to get that contribution to her. And I'm sure we'll get those children's uh, evil designs moving along quickly. Thanks again for the interest in our cause. And uh, yeah. Okay, so viewer comments from last week. Um, Braggenthorn wrote in. He said, I, not do, I do not believe Sarah is that giving of useful things. Um, 
maybe you got a you got a uh, you got a point there. Uh, rotting diaries, maybe. What else? Um, you know, maybe some of the things in her camp. Uh, you know, it's never too late for someone to have a change of heart, unless they have an old card, of course. Um, <clears throat> he uh, congratulates me on the spirit of my show. He enjoys the humor. And he warns me that they might start stealing some of my gags, so I should keep the beacons lit um, in uh, in observation. And uh, if anyone wants to steal my gags, you feel free to use them. They're quite old and uh, weathered at this point in time. I'm just a modest dwarf after all. <clears throat> Though I do have lawyers, and we will sue you. In this week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about what we've been doing in game this week. We will discuss a recent article on the history of LOTR, Tokian Games and Movies, uh, which came to me via Twitter feeds from several Lotro enthusiasts out there, Sithrith among them. Uh, and we have another chapter in our ongoing series on combat mechanics, specifically aggro. I'm a tank. I love aggro, so we're going to talk about aggro. And... Um, <clears throat> we're not talking about home life here. We're talking about MMORPG aggro. Lastly, if there's time, we'll cleanse our ballots using a um, a lovely uh, you know raspberry sorbet. Um, so, given that, let's light our third beacon. Nardal this week in Lotro and other Tolkien news. So, what have I been doing in-game lately this week? Uh, first of all, I wanted to mention, based on the release notes from 14.2, I went out to the 21st Hall recently and acquired my Moria Geode, which I was very excited about. That was a little pleasant little Easter egg, and it kind of looks like an Easter egg from the outside, um, that they uh, deposited there. Uh, hopefully, you know, stuff like that doesn't take too much effort, but can add to people's excitement of the game. Uh, so I went and got the Moria Geode, which, uh, because I had kindred status, cost like nine silver or something ridiculous like that, <clears throat> and uh, happily went to install it in uh, in my home, which I had not been to in a little while. Um, it is a huge yard object, so if you have a deluxe home, you only have one slot that it can fit into. Uh, so I had to take down my Lothlorien fountain. Um, which is a shame. I might swap that back in occasionally. I do like that item, but the Morio Geode is uh, is pretty. It was nice. In addition to that, I had a couple other uh, taxidermy items which I had acquired through my recent pursuit of the Savior of Kazadum title, or Savior of, of Lothlorien title, uh, including the Wings of Urgoth and the uh, Arm of the Karog, which I had gotten from. Uh, Naladum and uh, and Lumilnar, not respectively, but backwards. And uh, so the Urgoth's wings is an indoor wall item, um, and it's you know it's okay. It's nothing special. Doesn't do anything, but it does have a nice little severed tendon where the wings were separated from Urgoth's body. So that's always pleasant. Um, so I might keep those up for a little while just for a change of pace. And uh, the Karog arm is actually. Um, uh, you know, uh, not huge, but uh, regular or large yard item. So I took out, uh, I think Crank, I had Crankhook's hammer, sit, arm, uh, hammer sitting there for a good couple of years now. And I've inserted the Karog arm. It's much more colorful. It's a little larger. It's got flowers blossoming out of it. And uh, overall, I'm uh, fairly enamored of that as a housing item. So I might keep that up for a little while. Change is good, right? Okay, so what have I been doing aside from that? 
Uh, and by the way, the Moria Geode is looks to be about as big as it is in-game, which I was excited to see. I was worried that they might have shrunk it. Uh, first of all, Brenathor, my captain, uh, has finished the epic quest line um, and is lingering right about 99. It was about 98.5 after I finished the epic, uh, just because I'd skipped some of the areas around Western Gondor, not wanting to do every quest line with every tune. Um, a round of warbands brought me up to 99 right before the show. Uh, so he is shortly on his path to 100, and uh, I'll enjoy that. I do enjoy uh, very much playing Akapian raids. They're almost always in demand, and uh, uh, there's something fun about playing a captain in a raid because you're responsible for everything and nothing at the same time. You know, you don't have a specific job except to see what needs doing and take care of it, and you just exude goodness, which other players uh, recognize. <clears throat> Thus the demand. So I'm looking forward to raiding again with my Cappy. He could use uh, some better gear, so I think even some Scrades and some minor instances uh, might move up his jewelry some, since he hasn't done many big battles. Um, and I also got done two deeds uh, in Western Gondor for Virtues for him, so I think I've got all 19s and 18s, uh, maybe two more Virtues to pump up to 19 for him, so not bad. Overall, pretty good shape. My Minstrel... Um, Acquired Kindred with Dal Amroth, uh, basically based on uh, my man Bragg feeding bre uh, my mini task items, uh, based on all the Dal Amroth dailies. Basically, Shattered Hatchets and Pitted Sword Sheets are the two that drop most frequently from the DA, so you can pretty much kind of forget the others um, for the most part. Maybe some damaged furs or torn skins occasionally, but shat between Shattered Hatchets and Pitted Sword Sheets, you, you get some, some good stacks there. So I've just been funneling those to my mini, and uh, she did reach uh, Kindred with Dol Amroth, which enabled her to acquire her port, which is <coughs> pretty much the only thing I wanted for her. Uh, I might look at some of the recipes um, for the cook that have to do with essences at some point. So, Minster also ran some Pass of the Dead. Um, died a few times. Uh, <clears throat> she's no guard, that's for sure. But, uh, you know, generally speaking, did okay. You know, that, that area is still busy enough that if you latch on to a group, even one other person or two, you can, you can go through there pretty quickly. If you're on your own, you have to be a little more careful as a squishy. There's tons of those pathers. You, know, you don't need the bannermen, typically, unless you get them in the Shadow Watch. Um, but the bannermen that path in the other areas are a pain because they've got 38k morale. Uh, so having uh, one or two extras of those come upon you unexpectedly can be dangerous. Uh, but uh, I learned to time my minstrel flop and my hobbit flop, and between those two, I've been uh, you know doing a bit better in there <clears throat> with her. So she was able to funnel some uh, swan tokens uh, to brag. Um, which was the main reason I had a running DA dailies. I, I can't see wanting to go through the whole rigmarole with her, but she can supply additional tokens to my other tunes now, which is nice. So, um, Pass of the Dead. Um, you know, Bragg has completed all the quests in there, has all the tokens I think he needs for now. And I have to admit, I'm a little disappointed, unless there's something out there I haven't seen. It looks like there's no capstone to the Pass of the Dead. And, uh, you know, that's a bit disappointing. With a server-wide unlock and 
the wonderful job they did in the aesthetics of the area. Um, I was very excited to get in there. Uh, you know, the daily quests in there are okay. It's 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 a cool looking area, so that's good. And uh, you know, they put uh, a bunch of different objectives in there, which is also good. But I have to admit, I was really expecting to you know, and maybe it's out there, and I haven't got it yet because I haven't finished all the um, Swan Knight quests that you get through the training exercise area. Maybe when I'm done with all those, there'll be some kind of capstone, which would be fitting. But I did notice if you're in the Pass of the Dead, you know, and you're in the area, I think it's called Care Bras, which is kind of the back area. There looks like, you know, if you look at the map, there, there's a central building that looks like the door should open up into like one more main area behind what you're able to access through the daily quests. And it just seemed to me that that would be kind of the perfect opportunity to have uh, some kind of short instance, either solo or group, or hopefully both, that would take on the leader of the, you know, the remaining Ruthless Dead. Um, so, you know, maybe, again, I, I did some searching around and didn't find anything in the forums or um, in, uh, you know, in the, in the interwebs regarding that, but maybe after you complete all the quests in DA for all the dailies and etc., there'll be something like that. I really hope so. If not, Brag fixes Lotro, Turbine, get on it. Um, <clears throat> so let's talk about Bragg. Bragg has completed the bank area of the training exercises and now he's working on the dock area. Only one more quest in that area needed to close that area out. Um, the docks is a little bit more of a pain I think than some of the other areas because the mobs are also spread out. You have to run down to the end of every dock and there's like three or four of them you have to check to get some of the objectives. So that's a little bit of a pain. Uh, so I'll be glad to be done with that one. At that point, I'll have only the Masons and the Swan Knight areas left. So I still think, uh, you know, given six quests in each of those areas, you get two random ones each time. That's, you know, at a minimum, three, six, you know, seven, a minimum a week's run. And that's if I get every quest right. So I'm, I'm going to bank on it being two or three weeks to get all the different ones I need to finish all that out. And what will we get if we complete all these areas? Is it just access to all the different armor sets that are available? If so, that's lame. What else? We need something else. So that's a little bit of a rant, but what am I excited about? Um, well, I did invest the tokens to obtain the Black Swan pet. And I got to admit, I kind of like him. He's my favorite pet I've gotten so far. He squawks around, he flies in my shadow. Of course, it's an elitist thing because, you know, if you only got the white one, you really aren't, you know, grinding like I am. So, um, so the black swan is, uh, I haven't seen too many of them around yet. I'm sure they'll be pop popping up like, uh, like black swans pretty soon. Uh, there's going to be, you know, goose turds all over that place if they, I hope they got somebody to clean up the fountains. Hey, I'll get Grima on it when he gets back. Perfect. Um... I did ran some uh, tar uh, some TC groups, uh, just a group, picked up one or two essences as I ran through there. Uh, the rewards were eh. I don't know if I'll be doing that too often unless they get a little better. Um, I did go through the exercise of acquiring a tactical mitigation essence recipe and, uh, you know, acquiring a major tactical mitigation essence and the recipe that would turn it into a teal uh, with a chance at a, um, at a gold. So so first of all you have to get the tactical mitigation essence which I did through bartering tokens in the, in the Swan Fountain area. Uh, then you have to acquire the recipe uh, from 
uh, you know, from the Dole Amroth barter vendor. Uh, you have to send it to, uh, in this case, I sent it to my uh, my jeweler, who's my captain, uh, along with two emerald shards. And then I realized if I wanted the best crit chance for the gold level item, I needed a journal, a jeweler's journal for my scholar. So my scholar had to go back to Helm's Deep and <laughs> Helm's Deep and barter for a journal, Westmanet journal recipe, using tokens uh, plus a scroll to increase his crit chance up to almost, I think. 78% is the max. Um, so he made the scroll, made the journal, uh, sent that stuff over to my Cappy, who's the jeweler. The jeweler ran the recipe, 78% crit chance to get a gold essence, and no dice. So I've got a teal, which is still decent, but it's an awful lot of junk to go through to get a teal. <laughs> so that's pretty disappointing. RN Jesus, what are you doing to me? Uh, what else did I do? I ran the Morthrond Essence Farm for the first time. The calls have been going out for that for a while, so uh, I was in a kin where I could run that with my Cappy. Uh, just to understand what that's about. Um, takes about, uh, I don't know, four minutes per run. <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous, actually. And even the people showing it to me were a little embarrassed. They said, well, you know, apparently Turbine says it's working as designed. But, you know, you run all the way up to the door, you, you fight the beasts there, uh, the, black, uh, the Black Rider spawns, you beat him down, there's, like, no tactics whatsoever, it's just a beat down. He's dead in, like, literally 20, 30 seconds, um, you know, with no coordination with your group, no heals necessary. Uh, the Fell Beast doesn't even get involved in the fight, which I thought he would do in Fellowship mode. I think that's a missed opportunity. Um, so we ran it like four or five times in 20 minutes. I uh, didn't get any teal essence. You get basically a major essence in every run, or just about every run, and uh, three um, three ethylus, uh pots and uh, a little bit of silver. And, uh, you know, I guess there's a chance for a teal. We didn't get any in those, in those four or five runs, but it wouldn't be hard to generate maybe 15 essences, major essences in an hour of play. I would think there would be a decent chance of getting a teal um, in that amount of time. So um, that seems a little too easy and some, like something they might want to nerf at some point, but I guess they're fine letting people generate lots of purple essences in the game, and maybe they just drop the chance for a teal down uh, to make it a little less rewarding. Uh, if so, that might be one way to take it. The other way would be to make it a more challenging instance. Uh, that would be... Uh, you know, more fun and take more coordination. Maybe a little bit more like the, um, like the instance they have in Tarling's Crown, uh, the uh, the heirs um, that you do in the final tent with the boss there, which actually does require a little bit of coordination and a little bit of tactics to get through the fight. So that would be my suggestion. And by the way, that instance is now available in the reflecting pool outside of Morlad as well. Um, aside from that, uh, you know, I'm looking at how I might gear my other tunes, uh, now that, that the ones that are getting the level cap. Uh, looking through the set bonuses available in the Court of the Fountain, I can tell that some of them may want that four set bonus uh, that's available and just get two pieces of essence gear, whereas others, the, the four piece bonus isn't quite as exciting. So you can go with the two piece uh, bonus and maybe get four pieces of essence gear, uh, depending on the tune. Um, I've seen lots of Os Dunhoff uh, raids still going on, uh, except now they're mostly Tier 2 being run out there <laughs> uh, in order to get the first stage uh, drop chance, obviously. 
and some of those raids are now failing. I heard somebody complaining in uh, World Chat the other day about people running OD that didn't know what they were doing, and the group was failing. And you know, tier one, you can basically spank and you know, uh, you can basically uh, tank and spank your way through most of it. Um, but that's not true on tier two. So uh, hopefully there'll be some tutoring and some education that occurs, and not just uh, turning people down that don't know the instance. And lastly, I did complete the Dead Marshes content with Bragg. Um, I guess I'll take a minute to talk about it. You know, there's, I don't know how many quests, I'd say maybe eight, eight or nine quests in the whole region. Uh, one to find flowers, one to kill bugs, one to kill orcs, one to clear the chests from the orc camp, which with a guard was easy, but with other classes I can see being a little difficult given how thick they are. Um... They had some quests to run around to different areas of the swamp just to get you to see it. I think there might have been one to kill some dread mists, uh, you know, explore the Grodbag area all the way on the, the southwest corner of the map. Um, you know, and it's pretty. They did a good job with the landscape, as, as, uh, as um, they always tend to do. But, you know, I found the, the quests pretty lackluster. I did complain in the last episode, this is a CREP, that uh, that uh, the dread mists were reused instead of having um, wraiths spawn out of the water. So I did run into the wraiths that are in the water uh, over the course of the uh, over the course of the next couple days um, that I was running it. And again, I think it's a missed opportunity. So they do look cool, uh, kind of lying there in, in some of the deeper areas, the ponds. But I think it was an opportunity to say, when you run over one, it would animate and get up and attack you, uh, so that you kind of had to pick your way through the swamps and, and not tread on the bodies, instead of having the dread mists all over. I think that would have been uh, a little closer to the books and a little more fun and a little more uh, dynamic. So, uh, missed opportunity there. Um, when I was done, I finished the last quest and got the guy from Gondor out of there and went back to Dol Amroth and said, hmm, you know, something's missing, I forget. Oh, there's supposed to be a session play. Maybe maybe the Cave of the Avorum talks about it. They don't talk about it. So I had to go back into the instance and uh, what I missed on the first time around, the first couple times I was in there, I did look at the supplies and his bedrolls and clicked on those for quests, but... Uh, the supply stack does not activate the session play until after you're done with all the other content, and I didn't see that. Um, so I did activate the session play. I went through that. I did think that was well done. Uh, enjoyed that session. They covered some of the key kind of plot points of what was happening with Frodo and Sam, and it was fun to visit with them again. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to do that going forward as well. So overall for the Dead Marshes, glad it's in-game. Glad it looks nice. Uh, glad that we checked in on Frodo and Sam. The session play was probably the high point. Um, getting an essence reclamation skull and a decent teal essence out of it wasn't bad. Uh, but slugging around, slogging around out there with, uh, without horses, it's a pretty big area. Uh, I think it's going to get old to do it with the other tunes. And the quests just are lackluster. Uh, not very exciting with not great rewards unless you want to kill a 16k warband with the hope of getting a Tomb of the Frog. Uh, so what's with the warbands there? Um, 16k, really? <laughs> That's a warband? Okay. Uh, again, I think they're missing the boat on that one. You know, Bragg had no problem soloing the small fellowship uh, 
uh, other war band that was in there as well. And the rewards, if you don't get the Tomb of the Frog, are pretty crappy, which I think is consistent with what I've seen in war bands in Gondor. Somehow their their loot just seems to have gotten nerfed, which is a shame because uh, war band groups riding across the countryside was fun when the rewards were decent. All right, that's enough about what I've been doing in game. Let's move on to our next beacon. Erlas. Erlas this week. I want to talk a little bit about a recent article out on uh, Polygon.com that I saw through Twitter feed. I think it was Cithrus feed. Uh, thanks for pointing that out, Cithrus. Interesting article. Um, it's a history of uh, how some of the rights and licenses to Tolkien's Middle Earth and literary works uh, have spawned video games and movies over the years and kind of the relationship between the companies that acquired those rights and uh, the Tolkien estate that has uh, stayed very uh, very close to some of these projects. Um, so, you know, looking back on it, some of the titles in there are games that I've acquired over time. I thought I'd spend a second just going through some of the Lord of the Rings related games and uh, video games and board games that I've acquired over the years. So the first one I want to mention, and this was way back uh, when I was a youngster and getting introduced to the books by older siblings, um, my first Lord of the Rings board game, I can't even remember the name of it at this point, it's been lost to antiquity. It, uh, it basically had kind of a canvassy map that you laid out. Um, that kind of you know felt like an old old uh, kind of leather leathery kind of map, and uh, you know it had uh, various representations of Middle Earth with different paths that you could take from the Shire all the way to Mordor on it, and the playing pieces were little gems that came in a pouch. Uh, so there was one gem I think for each member of the Fellowship as well as uh, one for a black one for a black rider. And uh, basically, you had to choose your path uh, around the board, um, you know, rolling dice and having encounters. And you could split into, I think it was two to four players with one person playing the Black Rider or Sauron and, and the others playing members of the Fellowship. Uh, you know, I remember there were interesting points where you could, um, you know, if you were playing Aragorn, you could, you could choose to go to Rivendell and forge Narsil, which would allow you to survive an encounter with a Black Rider in case you met him on the road. But if you chose to skip that, it was quicker. You know, if you went uh, in the southern route past Orthanc, it was also quicker, but there was a risk of being ensnared and having the ring taken from you. Lots of little interesting tidbits like that. Uh, what's interesting about this game is that I've searched for it online uh, a number of times just looking for references of it anywhere and haven't been able to find it anywhere. So if this is ringing a bell and you've seen it or played it or you know seen a, a link to it anywhere, let me know. Um, nostalgia would uh, kind of force me to try to acquire a copy of that game if possible, but it is probably a good 30, 35 years old at this point and uh, and uh, I have not seen it on eBay, <laughs> that's for sure. So apart from that, um, the second Hobbit-related game I ever purchased was the Vivendi Sierra version of The Hobbit. I think I got it in a bargain bin for $4.99 at a, at a you know, Finelene's basement somewhere. And I uh, have to say, one of the better $5 games uh, I ever bought. So the article talks about the fact that it was kind of dumbed down to be a kid's game, appealing to kids 8 to 12. 
and I could see that the graphics are kind of stylized to be very cartoonish, but I actually found the gameplay to be very challenging in a lot of the areas uh, later in the game, especially in the Forest of Mirkwood against the spiders and crawling around in in um, in uh, in Erebor uh, in Smog's treasure treasure castle and a few other places. Getting by Bilbo's trolls was always uh, kind of interesting and fun. Um, so. I thought, uh, you know, for an early, early adaptation, one of the earliest ones out there, I thought it actually did a pretty good job and had a ton of gameplay for five bucks. If you ever see a copy of it, uh, you know, I played it, finished it to the end, and my kids have never gotten through it. They, get, they keep getting stuck, so. <laughs> uh, but they, they, they've enjoyed it, too. It still holds up, I think. Uh, you know, graphically, maybe not as much as current games, but... You can probably find a copy for dirt cheap out there, and there's a lot of gameplay to be had, so I recommend it. Uh, one point I picked up a Lord of the Rings game that uh, is like a unit that you sit on your TV, and it's got a little electric eye, and it gives you a sword, and um, it plays images on the TV, and you've got to swing the sword to like deflect attacks from Black Riders, or from the Watcher in the Water, or Crabane as your uh, top topping Caradras and and then you've got a slash back and um, you know again a cheap game that I got for Christmas from one of my siblings at one point I don't remember what it was called but uh, but uh, we had a lot of fun with that it's actually pretty physical to <laughs> try to swing the sword around and get through the different areas of the game eventually I had to discard it without winning the entire thing because uh, the the beam that the the sword would uh, uh, project onto the screen became a little unreliable which made it not as much fun to play uh, but we still have the sword <laughs> it's in the costume box down in Halloween um, I did acquire EA's Lord of the Rings Return of the King game which is maybe one of the more serious adaptations that was done at one point in time um, you know some fun gameplay there decent uh, you know I remember being a lot of key combinations to trigger kind of special attacks whether you were playing Gimli or Legolas or Gandalf or Aragorn or whatever the case would be. Um, I remember at some point we required, acquired a Lord of the Rings Trivial Pursuit game, which is uh, my family doesn't want to play with me anymore. <laughs> now that I've been playing Lotro for a couple of years, I definitely have an advantage of that one typically. Um, I did pick up the EA Battle for Middle-Earth game at one point, which is kind of a simulation game where you... Uh, you, know, you build uh, orc pits, or you know, depending on if you want to be good guys or bad guys, and you send your minions out to attack different areas and explore and come across different camps and so forth. Similar to other simulation games I've seen, you know, with medieval uh, uh, combat tactics and things like that, uh, but with a Middle Earth spin to it. Um, that was decent. Uh, you know, if you like that kind of game and you like Middle Earth, I'd say go for it. Not the best game I've seen, adaptation I've seen, but decent. Uh, I do have a, a sibling who acquired, acquired Lord of the Rings Risk, uh, which actually I think is an improvement on the original Risk game myself. It is fun to play, uh, but it is long. <laughs> you got you're in, you got to be ready to sit down for four or five hours. It's the same problem with a regular Risk game. Uh, but if you like Risk, uh, Lord of the Rings Risk is uh, is excellent. Puts a couple twists on it that makes it really interesting. Uh, of course, there's the Lego Lord of the Rings game, uh, which we got on the Wii at one point in time, and uh, enjoy the humor in that. Uh, we even got the Aragorn's Quest game, which I find a, a little less compelling. I'm not even sure we finished that one. Uh, Lord of the Rings Online is a MMORPG I've heard of. And now we've got Shadows of Mordor coming out. 
Um, I don't. I still haven't made up my mind on Shadows of Mordor. I played Assassin's Creed. It was fun uh, to some degree. It's really not my core kind of game that I enjoy, but I did enjoy some of the scenery and running out around in medieval Florence, uh, which I found kind of interesting. And the cutscenes are fairly well done. Um, so I have to see on that one. I'd say you know I'm more attracted to the lore of Mordor than I am to the the potential for the combat and the nemesis system that are coming out with it. So I'll probably read the reviews. Uh, you know I've got so many games stacked up to play. I'd have to say if I do play it, it might be a couple years down the road when it's a little cheaper. Okay, so as you can see from this list, I've spent a few bucks here and there, and I haven't even required all the games that have been out there. You know what's interesting to me about the article is. Uh, Kind of the contentious nature of the relationships with the Tolkien estate over the years, giving the developers fits, you know, making them change tomatoes into berries in the Shire, and you know, spend a lot of time looking for approvals and getting it late, and having to change things, and working crazy hours to get the game done at that point. You know, Christopher Tolkien appears to be central figure in a lot of these. Um, you know, and I respect that he wants to be protective of his father's work. You know, I don't want to see Lord of the Rings, you know, um, slot machines out there in Vegas and things like that. Um, there was a, a Lord of the Rings mobile game that came out recently called Kingdoms of Middle-Earth that I tried for a little while where you build up a dwarven kingdom with armories and different kinds of things. And it, it, it's a game that I've seen done like six, seven different ways, and they're just trying to sell it on the strength of the LOTR IP. And I thought it, it felt like a cash grab. Um, you know, added nothing to my enjoyment of Tokian's lore and world, so I deleted it. And there are a few games out there that have been like that over the years, but the ones that are well done, and uh, you know, I think even the Tokian professor admitted that uh, that Lotro, you know, got it right in a lot of different areas as far as respect for Tokian's lore. Um, you know, the ones that uh, I'm most interested in. Um, so I did note that once EA let their la rights lapse on the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales, once they decided not to make a game called The White Council, uh, Tolkien Estate has never let anyone else reacquire those rights. And uh, I kind of understand that. Silmarillion is a much more difficult book to read than Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. And uh, I think it takes a real Tolkien enthusiast to get through it and enjoy it uh, for what it is and for what it adds to the overall mythos of the world. Um, and I don't think it lends itself easily to adaptation, so I'm not sure they're not correct in, in kind of keeping it pristine from that perspective. Um, will we ever see a Silmarine adaptation in my lifetime? Well, hell, there's enough move money behind the IP and enough momentum in the studios, even if a a Warner Brothers studio exec can't spell Silmarillion and doesn't really understand what's in there. He could greenlight a project just on the prospect of another billion bucks, uh, you know, not even understanding what he has, uh, which is probably the way it would be done. Um, so I could see a movie based on the story of Fenor and the fate of the Silmarils. It would be so different from Lord of the Rings in tone, and, and with so much of a less of a built-in audience, you know, with so many fewer people that have read that book. Not sure it will ever come to fruition, uh, even given the money that's out there. And maybe that's for the best. Maybe it's for the best. Let's let uh, let's see where this last movie of the Hobbit trilogy lands and what it adds to uh, to the representation of Tolkien's world. We'll let things die down for a little bit. 
and then we'll wait for uh, the lore enthusiasts to start chanting for a Silmarillion adaptation. Uh, if I had to bet, I would say it's gonna ha not going to happen in my lifetime, and maybe that's for the best. Okay, so let's move on to Min Rimon. And a word from our lucky sponsors. Oh, boy, the sponsors are just flocking to the podcast in droves. Who do we have now? Let me see. Here's a new one. Um, Holly Hornblower's Freaky Fast Pie Delivery Service. Able to leap tall hobbit holes with a single bounder. We'll have your pie to your hole faster than you can skin a coney. Holly Hornblower's now delivering to Brockenborings. Holly Hornblower's Freaky Fast Pie Delivery Service. And by Helchgam Spa and Beauty Salon. This week's special, a moisturizing rinse in our deep green seafoam hot tub. Feel your morale ebb away with all of your cares. Helchgam Spa and Beauty Salon, conveniently located in the new Carndoom Outlet Mall out on Ang 80 with plenty of adjacent parking at Ruhrgarth. We do validate. Thanks, sponsors. Really appreciate your continued support of the show. And lastly, let's move on to our sixth beacon, Kalanhad, where we're going to have another in our continuing series on combat mechanics. And we're going to talk about the best mechanic of all for tanks, aggro. So in this week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about melee skills that have an aggro component, about the, the mechanic of aggro in general. In general. So let's start out. For all the hunters and champs out there who might not know, haha, <laughs> stereotypes are fun. What is aggro? Uh, or sometimes referred to as hate, I've heard it. Well, if you're playing an MMO, you've probably heard of the Holy Trinity, which would be ale, pizza, and pipe wheat. No, it's tank, heals, and DPS, um, with subgenres in crowd control, buffing, and debuffing. Uh, but the Holy Trinity says the tank grabs the attention of the mobs and takes all the beating. The heals heals the tank, and the DPS burns down the morale of the boss. Um, First of all, when we're talking about aggro, it's all about whose attention does the mob have that you're trying to take down. And the first tip I have is to, if you're a tank, uh, to go into your combat options, your options panel combat options, and check off a, a box called show the vitals of your selections target. And what that does is it, it pops up a little window, uh, which you can move around your UI to someplace convenient which shows um, the target of your selection. So if my selection is the boss that we're trying to burn down, it's gonna show me who he's focusing on at any point in time. And since I am a guard and the tank for the fight, I wanna see my portrait picture and Bragg's vitals sitting there in that box all the time. This is the easiest way to tell if you lose aggro in a fight, which would necessitate you taking some action to get it back typically. Um, if you have that checkbox checked, you can make sure that your shining tank's face is sitting in that uh, selection all the time. And uh, very, very handy to have. So, uh, letting the tank grab aggro on a mob and performing a quote-unquote tank and spank strategy for a fight is the bread and butter of MMO combat strategy, but aggro control can be more complicated than you might know if you've never leveled a tank to endgame. Most people who play MMOs know that doing damage and healing others can attract attention from mobs, but many skills have specific aggro components as well. 
Some do damage, and some are solely aggro skills, of which the Warden and Guard have the most in order to tank effectively. Um, so the old adage says that Wardens generally have the best skills that generate aggro over time, while the Guardian is generally considered to have the best snap aggro skills to attract immediate attention of surrounding mobs in an emergency. This is why when you start a fight with a Warden as you tank, you always give him a little extra time um, starting a fight to get off an aggro gambit before you open up with your DBS, DPS. Uh, the, the Warden may have to go through several gambits to really lock that boss down before the DPS starts. Uh, so generally give them a little more time at the beginning of a fight. So, a uh, second point I want to make is that all aggro generating skills display small squiggly red lines above the heads of any mob that's impacted by them when they are triggered. So you can see who you're attracting attention from. So if you're a guard and you run into the middle of a group of mobs and you hit your challenge, you should see little squiggly red lines over all the heads of the mobs that you've just impacted. And that may help you understand what the range of those skills is a little better over time. And, uh, you know, if you don't play a tank, you may never have noticed those squiggly lines before, but they are important, and they're a good visual indicator of what's going on with your, with your tank. Uh, if you don't see these squiggly red lines, you may ask your tank what he's doing. <laughs> what are you doing, and why am I dying? Um, so most heavies, which would include wardens, guards, champions, and captains, uh, have some form of aggro taunt they can use to help control a fight. Uh, so the captain and champ, uh, you know, do have a bit, have those capabilities, and they have them more heavily when they're traded in their tanking lines. For example, the captain has a battle shout, uh, which attracts attention. It's a single target AOE. Um, I'm sorry, it's a single target taunt, um, and when he's traded correctly, uh, it it can impact up to six targets, making him a more viable. Uh, tank for larger groups. Um, uh, champs can actually steal aggro or uh, kind of uh, leech aggro from fellowship members and dump it onto the tank when needed with skills called ebbing ire and rising ire and ebbing ire. I currently don't have an endgame champ, um, so right now my champ's in the 30s, so I'm not sure how relevant this is anymore. Uh, now that Helm's Deep has come out, or how often most champs actually put this skills into their rotation. Uh, I anticipate it's done more situationally and uh, you know maybe for particular fights, and generally speaking you stick with standard DPS rotation unless it's called for, but if you have a champ and you know Rising and Ebbing Ire is part of your regular rotation, let me know how you use it. I'd be interested in finding out. Uh, there's also a skill from the Berg called Provoke, which will increase the threat uh, uh, or the connection between um, between a mob and, and the person whose threat it currently holds. So that can be useful as well for reinforcing the threat of your tank. Um, aggro skills can be single, single uh, target taunts. They can be AOE taunts. Uh, they can generate aggro over time or they can be aggro copies. Uh, and uh, there are a lot of uh, aggro skills with the hel release of Helm's Deep that were translated into this ag aggro copy mechanic, which says that if, uh, let's say there's an index of how much aggro you have in a mob, and you've got a thousand units of aggro on that mob, um, if someone else hits them with, uh, with an aggro copy 
uh, skill, um, they'll be automatically trumped up on the table to uh, a notch above that thousand, say 1200. And if you steal it back with another aggro taunt skill, uh, you will copy the the person, you know, the lead person's aggro to yourself and increase it a notch as well. So I guess the the practice of having an off tank, you know, and trading aggro kind of initially from the tank to the off tank and then back to the tank is something that could be used effectively to ramp up a, a tank's aggro initially at the beginning of a fight. Um, so, uh, you know, all your aggro skills have different ranges and cooldowns and affect different numbers of targets. So knowing what skills have specific aggro components and triggering them or not triggering them at specific times can mean the difference between life and death in a lot of boss fights. Um, you know, as a guard, I have, uh, you know, my, my farthest uh, range aggro skill is Fray the Edge, which is a single target taunt, which also rages the level potentially for, um, for fellowship maneuver percentage chance, uh, and it can stack as well. Uh, but once I get close to a target, I try to lock him down with engage, uh, a single target, because that's an aggro copy and it automatically puts me at the top of the threat table. Uh, whereas challenge and um, some of the other taunt skills that you have, like shield taunt and uh, litany master, um, you know, are, are good AOE taunts for multiple targets when you're trying to get like a whole group of ads grouped together. Um, so. Why, why typically will fight break down? Why can't, you know, when you're being blamed, you're the tank, and they're saying, why can't you hold aggro? What are some of the reasons you not, might not be able to hold aggro as a tank? You know, first of all, did you capture all the, all the mobs in the initial force taunt? You want to make sure, since your force taunts have large cooldowns, that you're using them to catch as many of the mobs in the area as possible. You know, sometimes it's best to run around a room where mobs are dispersed and have them all follow you into a corner before you hit the force taunt, which locks them down for a specified time period. You know, proximity, uh, the first person to enter the proximity of the mob automatically generates threat. And if the rest of the party is staying out of it, you don't need a force taunt um, initially to round up a bunch of mobs in a room. Then once you have them in a tight group, you can employ your AoE taunt. Um... Also, AOE taunts have you know max targets depending on you know how you're traded, of you know perhaps eight to ten mobs, um, and then some of the reinforcing ones, which are smaller, might only target like five or six mobs. So there, there's definitely a max, and there are instances out there, like for example, you know uh, Helgrod, the final the final dragon wing of Helgrod, where you can get you know deluge with 20, 30 troops at once, where a single tank is just not going to be able to lock down all those targets. Um, he just doesn't have the force taunt, uh, you know, uh, number of targets available. Um, so why else might you lose aggro? Uh, not hitting your follow-up taunt skills available as they come off uh, cooldown uh, might be a factor. You know, when I'm tanking, uh, you know, that's my number one priority. When my when my taunts, if they're appropriate for the group size and and the range I'm looking for, are off cooldown, I'm using them. And then I'm worried about, you know, for, first survive, <laughs> right? You can't do much if you're not dead. Uh, second, hold aggro. So keep reinforcing your force taunts and your, your, your different taunt skills. And then uh, DPS is the last priority. DPS um, generates aggro as well. And if you're in a tanking stance with Helm's Deep, it generates significantly more uh, than the DPS you're putting out. I think it's uh, the figure I've heard bandied about is 300%. 
uh, of your DPS values um, as of Helm's Deep, are, you know, when you're in the right stance, are translating into aggro. So it could be that you don't have enough DPS to stay atop the aggro list uh, after the force taunt lapses, right? So a force taunt may only hold for 10 seconds, after which, you know, if you're not at the top of the threat table with the uh, with your DPS that you've generated aggro on, mobs are going to wander unless you do another force taunt. Uh, so I've heard this is not really uh, much of an issue after HD, uh, it's de uh, after Helm's Deep release. It's it's been greatly simplified, and it's a lot easier for a tank, especially with um, you know some increased DPS balancing that they were granted as well. Um, why else might you lo lose mobs? Gear can be an issue. Um, you know, LI traits that increase threat used to be crucial, as well as um, you know ones for force taunt duration and the number of melee targets you're hitting. Uh, maybe not as much as it used to be, but it can be a factor. And then the other most classic uh, reason why you might lose aggro is because of too much DPS from other classes for you to stay on top of the list. You know, if you've got a really uh, kind of elite DPS, um, you know, geared fellow, uh, he may delight in stealing aggro to try to prove how, you know, how awesome he is. <laughs> he may be getting himself killed when he does that, but he'd be proud as he dies. Um, you know, so some of the things that you need to be aware of, you know, Hunter needs to use Endurance Stance instead of Strength Stance. Um, yeah, they need to time their Burn Hot uh, skills. And they need to not open up with Heartseeker as you might with a solo encounter. So some Hunters like to open a solo encounter with Heartseeker because it's got a long induction and they can get it off before a fight starts. Uh, but you don't want to do that in the middle of a Fellowship fight because you know, you're hitting a big spike in DPS before your tank can lock down the mobs. Um, as, uh, as DPS or heals, you, you just try to use your aggro reduction skills whenever possible. Uh, so, um, Hunter's Beneath Notice, uh, Minstrel's Anthem of Compassion or Song of Soothing, uh, use Loot Strings when they're available, uh, which is a Minstrel Consumable, which will decrease your threat. Um, uh, Runekeepers have Calming Verse and Detracting Winds. Cappy has a skill called Withdraw. All those things will help your tank, or you can use them when you notice aggro attracted to you. If you can get them off in time, uh, you know, a mini might have to use like a Cry of the Valor to give no interruptions on his induction to get off a Song of Soothing, but uh, often that can lose the mob threat once you do complete it. Um, you know, it's especially important to do some of these things before you hit off big skills like maybe Fellowship's Heart. Uh, you know, Minstrels, you know, it used to be the th the Thirbo was the was the um, instrument that had the greatest threat reduction. Um, so that would be the the key um, instrument that you would use when grouping. Uh, but now use the modern equivalent. So now you can get any any instrument build in any instrument with the new. Um, variable output crafting recipes. Uh, so it's it, the point is it's easier now to forget that you changed out your instrument. You know, it used to be I knew I, I needed a Theorbo in groups and I would switch to a drum when I was soloing because it had the greatest DPS. Uh, you know, so different instruments for different stances. And I still recommend to minstrels that they do that so that it's easy to recognize when you forgot to swap it out. Uh, and I assume our case of something similar with either uh, chisels or rifflers uh, that are attuned for threat reduction. Um, you should know that healing a target that is not tops in the mob's aggro list I think generates either less or no aggro. It's, it's somewhat unproven. 
And uh, you know, if you're a tank, self-heals generate aggro as well. So hitting some of your own self-healing skills will also help you lock down aggro as well. Uh, in a group, often what you'll do is the tank will grab everybody and the, 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 the group will peel away mobs from the tank one by one. Uh, what's useful to do that is when you have a secondary fellowship assist for the DPS lead uh, so that everyone's focusing on the same target and it's easy to uh, you know, leech threat away from that one target away from the tank. So the interesting part is that you know the aggro formulas in Lotro have always been arcane. They've been kept under the hood uh, with no visibility except for what you could do practicing out in the field or with training dummies. And a lot of the mimaxers have done research to try to nail down those formulas over time. You know, I'm glad that we don't have uh, you know a threat meter and DPS meter like are available with WoW add-ins. I don't bother with any of that stuff. I'm not a min-maxer. I don't, you know, chart the values and look at spreadsheets. But I do do everything I can to maximize, you know, my threat as a tank and having a tanking build. And then I let the chips fall where they may. Uh, higher, DP, higher DPS does equal more threat. So why wouldn't you use a two-hand weapon in that case? Well, because shield skills have additional threat components um, as well uh, that are better. And uh, you know it gives you more survivability. Remember, survivability is your first, is your first, uh, you know, your first responsibility, then threat, then DPS. And when you're using a shield, you also get an additional AOE taunt called the shield taunt, uh, which comes in handy to fill in your rotation. Um, the other thing that not a lot of people know is that threat can crit, the same as damage can crit. So the value of your um, and they 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 crit independently from what I understand. So you can get a you can get a crit on your damage, right? Which would uh, provide a amount of threat, you know, several hundred percent times the damage value. And then that uh, threat component can can crit as well um, to to put you even further on up on the table. Um, so threat generation now is more heavily uh, with the Helm's Deep release is more heavily placed in the tank shoulders. Um, you know, other members of Fellowship used to be able to utilize more legacies and skills that reduce threat, making aggro entirely a group effort rather than a tank's effort. Uh, but with the exception of a very few remaining threat reduction capabilities, a lot of these have been removed, and tanks now generate a massive amount of increased threat by default. Uh, we know that Helm's Deep release simplified aggro. Um, wardens appear to have gotten the short end of the stick. I'm not sure if some of the latest class trait changes. <clears throat> made them, um, you know, a little more competitive, but I haven't seen as many Warden tanks in the game uh, of late. Um, you know, obviously, they're more versatile with DPS, though, and range, especially. So, um, what else about threat? Let me see. Uh, some bosses or mobs have random aggro component mechanics to spice things up in fights. For example, a mob like a Grim, which you can encounter in a Scrade as a lieutenant or in an instance like Fire and Frost, have random aggro components which, um, you know, even if the tank locks them down, uh, they may run away and attack someone else occasionally. Um, that happens in lots of other fights too. In that case, often you'll see that, uh, you know, when you look at the checkbox I talked about, the boss still has his attention on the guard, but has chosen to attack somebody else. So basically, for the duration of his next attack, he's he's chosen to adjust perceived threat of the guard down to zero percent, 
and go attack somebody else before returning to the guard. Uh, but you know, when when someone runs away, you should check and make sure if his focus is still on you or if it's actually been switched to another uh, fellowship member, because that may give you, give you a clue of the mechanic of what's going on. Uh, so. Uh, a random aggro component is different from an aggro wipe that actually sets the aggro threat table to zero. Uh, an example of that is in um, the twins in uh, in the BG raid, Barrett Golder. They have a, a debuff and, and an eye that goes over your head and a knockback that occurs if you if you don't get rid of it. And everybody within a certain radius has their aggro table set back down to zero. And the tank has to then go about reacquiring it, and everyone needs to be cognizant of that before they open up uh, uh, DPS again. So that's an interesting mechanic. Uh, there's also a perceived threat reduction. So uh, occasionally bosses will place an effect on you that lowers your perceived threat. So that means you're placing the table. If you have a thousand points, it's still a thousand points, but the perceived threat is reducing it by a certain amount, say 30%. So the value in the table is still a thousand, but the the boss is looking at it as if it's seven hundred. Um, so there's a mechanic uh, also in BG when you fight Dirt Chest, where um, he kind of elevates a debuff on you of per you're reducing your perceived threat slowly over time. The longer he's focused on you, and what you have to do is end up s uh, switching aggro to another tank until that debuff is completely gone. Uh, in which case you can reacquire the aggro. So basically you end up switching it back and forth uh, between the two tanks and you know the first tank has to absolutely get all the debuff gone before he reacquires it or he'll um, you know continue to get that perceived threat reduction you know magnified uh, which causes messes. Uh, you know typically since the healer's focusing on the tank once the tank's done you know healer is the next guy on the list um, and at that point you're doing uh, well, I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, lastly, um, getting stunned uh, will also uh, impact threat. So occasionally a monster will stun you, uh, like a giant will stomp on you and cause you to spin around. At that point, your perceived threat will effectively drop to zero for the duration of the stun. Um, so that happens uh, also in, let's say, the, um, uh, the, the forge, right, in the Isengard six-man. In the final fight, if your tank gets stunned, uh, you know, by the forge, uh, the other guys can run away and start creating havoc elsewhere, and that's the time to blow some cooldowns and make sure everyone rides that out until the tank can reacquire. Um, so another interesting thing about threat, uh, you know, one other example I want to take from an instance: uh, the 16th hall when you're in the final fight against the blind one. Um, you know, there's a bunch of bugs in there. If you want to do challenge mode, you can't kill any of the bugs. So the most popular tactic on that used to be that a cappy um, would hit his rallying cry uh, to scoop up all the bugs in the room so he'd apply a self-heal and since no one else had entered the fight that would start generating aggro and all the bugs would focus on him and he would then run around the outside of the room uh, keeping the bugs busy while uh, the rest of the party took care of the blind one himself um, the only problem with that is that occasionally the mushrooms would spawn and slow his speed and the bugs would catch him and start to beat him down. So you needed to assign someone to crush the mushrooms whenever they popped up so that the cappy wouldn't get caught while he was kiting. Um, excellent design for a boss fight, which I'll talk about at a future time. And uh, so as, as long as the cappy's healing himself, uh, you know, no one heals the cappy more than he heals himself, you would have no issues in that instance. Um, you know, if a minstrel started hitting the cappy with stronger heals, then they'd uh, you know, leech the aggro from the mobs. So, 
Oh crap, you got aggro. What do you do now? <laughs> well, if you're a minstrel, uh, you hit your still as death skill, which drops your perceived threat to zero for the duration of the skill. Now when you pop up, you'll still have the threat you had before, but hopefully someone will have concentrated on the mob and reacquired it and, and gotten higher than you on the table while you were down. Hobbits can also use the Hobbit Flop, which is why it's nice to have a Hobbit Flop, uh, Hobbit Mini um, as an extra one there. The cooldown's a little longer, but it's nice to have two to back each other up. Um, you know, popping cooldowns like your racial skills can come in handy until the tank can reacquire aggro. Uh, using champ aggro management or other threat reducing skills if they're available to you. And uh, one of the most important lessons of all. Don't run away from the tank. You should be running to the tank if you've acquired mob uh, aggro that you don't have. You don't want your tank running around the room after you trying to reacquire aggro one mob with all the other mobs following him. That's a recipe for disaster. Um, you know, you're going to lose control of the fight that way. So you should run to the tank so that his uh, AoE taunts um, you know, will catch that mob in range. And he can taunt that, uh, that mob off of you and then you can back up. Lastly, just talk to each other. <laughs> if someone's beating on you, let everybody know, especially if you're the minstrel or if you're a squishy. And uh, hopefully if you've got good people in the fellowship who can tab target and find that mob easily, you will be able to deal with it. And that's probably all you ever wanted to know about aggro. Um, but if you're really interested in the mechanics and the number crunching, go out there in the forums. I'll show you find plenty of articles. But that's a good reminder for you. Happy tanking. And with that, we're on to our final beacon. Halifurian. Blessed relief. Blessed relief for me. That brings us to the end of the 16th episode of Light the Beacons. I'd love to hear plaudits, feedback, rants, diatribes, and most of all, your constructive critique. You can contact me at bragsonofbalan at gmail.com. That's Bragg with two A's. The second A stands for absolution. On Facebook or Twitter at Braggson of Bowen, my website at letthebeacons.com, where you can post your comments directly on the podcast. And I kindly request that you take the time to create an iTunes review if perhaps you're so inclined. I would very much appreciate it. Still only five reviews out there. Looking for that lucky number six. Maybe it could be you. If your con comments incite me to forego my dwarven apathy, I will try to include them in the next podcast or at least respond to them in some way. So I hope you laughed either at or with me. I hope you might have learned at least a little something you didn't know before or looked at the game with a slightly different perspective, especially when you're aggroing your spouse. And most of all, I hope you enjoy your time this week in Middle-earth. This is Bragg, Son of Balance, signing off. Baruch Kazad! And remember, when you're on the penultimate step of the Beacon of Yoworth, and hit a major lag spike on your final jump, causing you to plunge to the depths. Don't despair. Get back up there on the top and light that beacon. Hey, Grima, you obsequious gnome, I'm still not getting any signal here. Run back up to Xerix Ziggle and plant that antenna right in that Belrog's nether regions. And I mean deep. Durin's Bane. I'll show him a Bane right in his buttocks. We're going to light the beacons all up in his business. Ha <laughs> ha!